invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk chapter 3. If you've got a pew Bible, this is on page uh, 935, that black hardcover one there. Uh, sad news and good news, this will be the second to last week, I think, that we spend in Habakkuk. Is that right? Thanks, Randy. So we're finally done next week. Uh, and then we'll be starting into the Gospel of Mark uh, in a few weeks. And that might take a little while, but at least we got into the New Testament. We got to the Gospel. I'm always very excited about uh, preaching through the New Testament. Um, so we've got something to look forward to after Habakkuk for those of you who have been uh, sad about leaving it. Uh, if you would, though, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word this morning? Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 16. And let me pray for us. Father God, we ask that you would come now and speak to us through your word. Lord, that you would open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts. Lord, that we would hear you and see you and encounter you, that we might be forever changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, but, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. He came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is God's inspired word, so please be seated. Now you may remember that Habakkuk, the name Habakkuk, uh, the name of this prophet, means to embrace or to wrestle or grapple. And Habakkuk is a prophet who is wrestling with the idea of injustice and evil in the world. And he's trying to understand, he begins his, his book by, by talking about how can the wicked prosper and how can God allow horrible, terrible things to happen in the world. 
you know, the, the insinuation or really the accusation is, is one of three things. Either that God does not know what's going on, that God is not able to correct these problems that the prophet sees, or simply that God does not care about his people. You know, God, don't you see or don't you know or can't you do anything? Don't you care? There's not really any other options here. And, and he's watching as these Babylonian forces are coming and they're taking over Israel and, and, he's, and he's wondering why God isn't answering their prayers. You know, is, is Babylon too powerful for God? You know, God had worked and done great things for the Israelites once upon a time. It's almost like a, like a fairy tale. I don't know how many of you sometimes read things in the Old Testament and you get sort of like the flannel graph pictures in your head from Sunday school. Or maybe the VeggieTales images if you're a little bit younger or maybe older depending on where you are. You know, you kind of have these cartoonish images where it makes them kind of not real. And so for them, they're thinking back, well, hundreds, hundreds of years ago, God did something, but he's not operating now. Maybe God isn't strong enough to handle the Babylonians, but the Egyptians he could, he could have dealt with. You know, that was in a country far, far ago, a long time ago in a place far, far away, right? Or does God just not really care? Has he given up hope? Is he a negligent father? And so Habakkuk chapter 3 is the, is the prayerful, really it's a, a song of response as Habakkuk has asked these questions of God and then God answered his accusations. And now he is writing to us this prayer, this song that speaks of the presence of God, the power of God, and the passion of God. So those are the three things that we're going through this morning, the presence of God, the power of God, and the, and the passion of God. You know, what happens when God actually shows up? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you were, were alive in 1963? You didn't have to raise your hand. Okay. How many of you remember December of 1963 when the son of the most famous singer in the world was kidnapped? Anybody remember that? One person. So there was this, this, this guy uh, in California who was trying to figure out a way to come up with some money. And he put together a business plan that involved kidnapping Frank Sinatra Jr. I mean, this is kind of comical when you think about it. He wrote it all out. He put it in a binder. He did step by step. He figured that he needed about $240,000 exactly. And, and so he, he figured he could, he could kidnap Frank Sinatra Jr. That he would call up Frank Sinatra Sr., who, if you don't know, he was like a big deal at the time kind of in the height of his powers. He also had some mob connections, which is sort of interesting. Uh, anyways, he kidnaps Frank Sinatra Jr., calls up his dad and says, I need $240,000. And Frank Sinatra immediately says, I'll give you a million. And the kidnappers say, no, no, we only want $240,000. This is, this is part of the story. This is true. And so he says, you know, it leads them on this, uh, sort of on this little chase. And, and of course, the FBI gets involved right away. And he says, okay, in, in 30 minutes, I'm going to call a payphone out in uh, Carson City. It's about 30 minutes away. And, and once you get to that payphone, we'll call and give you the next instructions. And, and so 
15 minutes go by and the kidnappers start calling this gas station asking for Frank Sinatra. Okay, and the, the attendant at the gas station is like, are you you're kidding me, right? You know, Frank Sinatra, he thinks someone's pl playing a prank on him, and so he hangs up the phone three times on these kidnappers, laughing at them, and what happens 10 minutes after the last call, who rolls into the gas station parking lot? It's Frank Sinatra and then a bunch of FBI agents on his heels. You know, the, the, the reason the story is funny is because nothing bad actually happened. You know, they, they got his Frank Sinatra Jr. back, you know, safe and sound. He wasn't even planning to hurt him. In fact, later on in his confession, he said, well, I, I'm a good Catholic, and so I was planning to pay back the Sinatras. You know, over the course of five years, I was just going to, you know, pay it back to all the money that I had borrowed from them uh, because he couldn't figure out a conventional way to finance his, his dreams and schemes. And actually, this guy, you know, later he's acquitted as being kind of certifiably insane, but then he went on to make a lot of money anyway in, the, in real estate. So, you know, what happens when Sinatra shows up? Like, the, the whole place goes crazy. What happens when God actually shows up in the midst of these accusations and in the midst of all that is happening here in the world. And that's what Habakkuk is telling us, the presence of God. You, you, and it sort of seems like Habakkuk is kind of forgetful. He's forgetful of who God is, right? He thinks, again, that, that God isn't around, that God doesn't see. It's kind of like he's playing a game. Again, take you back a little bit. I don't know how many of you remember the, the game from the early 90s called Don't Wake Daddy. And it's a board game. I think they still make it today. It's got like a plastic bed, a spring-loaded daddy in this plastic bed in the middle of the board. And you've got, anybody ever played this game? Okay. I only saw the commercials for it. I always wanted to play it, never did. And so you go around the board, and then, you, you know, you pull different cards. Like, you know, your, your kids, the, the premise of it is that you're a child and you wake up at night and you want to go get a snack, but you can't wake up daddy. And so you pull a different card. It says that you step on the cat's tail and then you have to press this little button on the alarm clock next to daddy's bed to see if it actually wakes him up or not. It's sort of like a combination between Russian roulette and um, I don't know, the game of life or something. It seems very, very strange when you think about it. Anyway, you're, you're just trying to sneak around and make sure you can do what you want to do without waking up daddy. See, if you wake up, you've got to go back to bed and start all over again. And in, in, in one way, as a father, I'm kind of appreciative if my kids woke up and didn't wake me up. You know, in the other, other sense, I, I kind of would like to know if they're wandering around the house in the middle of the night. Um, so, you know, Habakkuk, in his distress, he, he, he cries out to God, but it's kind of like he's playing this game of don't wake divine daddy. You know, he wants to rail against God. He wants to accuse God of, of all these things. But he really, truly doesn't want God to show up, I don't think. You know, he, he doesn't really want God to respond to these questions because what happened, what would happen if God actually replied? If God actually said, hey, wait just a moment here. And, and that's what we see. What would happen if, if God hears that you're accusing him of being deaf and ignorant and negligent. That you think that he's actually removed his presence from you. That he can't see what's going on in the world. That he doesn't care about you when life hurts. And so he lashes out over and over again. He writes it down in, in scripture for us. And it doesn't really seem like he expects 
God to answer. It's kind of like in, in, in the Bible, we, we read in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on Mount Carmel and he's, going, he's facing off against the prophets of Baal. And, and, and these, there's 450 prophets and they're, and they're all there. And there, there's this challenge, right? Okay, who's the real God? Is it the God of, of Elijah or is it the God of, the, of is it Baal? And so they're crying out, and they've got this, this pile of wood, and they want, they're trying to call fire down from heaven, and Elijah is mocking them. And he said, hey, where's your God? Why don't you cry out a little bit louder? Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. And then they start cutting themselves with swords. I mean, there's blood pouring out. Why? Their God isn't caring at all. And Baal never responds. Baal never shows up. It's almost as if Habakkuk expects his God to respond the same way Baal does, which is just with saying nothing. And yet, if you remember that encounter, one prayer from Elijah was all it took to get his attention of God. He says, answer me, O Lord, that these people may know that you are God and may turn their hearts back to you. And what happens? God shows up and God shows off. He, he, he rains down fire from heaven. It consumes this, this, not just the wood on the altar, but the altar itself. And the people cry out that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. And they start this chant. See, so following the accusations of Habakkuk in chapter 1, Daddy wakes up. And he explains that he does seek. And that he does know and he does care about sin. And that while he will certainly judge the wicked, he also is going to discipline his children because the same things that they're complaining about in the world are also the things that they're struggling and wrestling with in their own lives. Why is he going to discipline them? It's because he loves them and he cares about them. And he sees what a huge mess that they have made of their lives and of their nation. He longs for them to return to him. See, the truth was that God had never abandoned his people at all. His presence was always with them. But what had they done? They had turned their backs on him. They had abandoned him. And so here is this, this song in Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, which is to be sung by the people of God after they have challenged the presence of God. We read in verse 3 that God came down from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, what, what are the significance of these places? Well, they're kind of calling us back to that region, that place where God had showed up to Moses. You remember, he was up on a mountain, as Bo was reading before. You know, that God came down to Moses and, and gave him the Ten Commandments. Now, side note, what were God's people doing when Moses was up talking to God, God's people were down on the, in the valley creating a golden idol and worshiping it. And yet God came down and met with Moses. When Moses came down, his, his face is shining so brightly that the people can't even look at him. He's got to wear a covering just so that other people can, can be in Moses' presence. See, Mount Sinai was a holy place. Moses had removed his sandals in the wilderness when he met with God at the burning bush. But, but here we read about the, this mountain where God came to. And, and Moses told the people ahead of time, hey, 
don't go into the mountain. Okay, when I'm up there, don't, don't go on it. Don't touch it. Because what happens if you touch it? You're going you're gonna to die. If, if, a, if a man or a, or a beast, an animal, wanders up onto this holy mountain of God, don't even touch them. Uh, he gives instructions on how to kill the people that have gone into the holy place, okay? Don't even touch them. Throw stones at them because what's going to happen to you if you touch the one that's been cursed by God? I mean, it's, it's incredible, right, that, that God shows up. And God, who is perfectly holy, has ways that he expects his people to come to him. So to be an unauthorized entrant into the presence of the Lord meant certain death because God is perfectly perfect. He is wholly other and he's worthy of nothing less than perfect obedience, perfect affection. See, but God is not limited to or, or contained to one certain geographic area. It wasn't just this one mountain that contained the presence of God, right? God is, is never absent. He is never not present. And the theological term for that is that God is omnipresent, right? Omnipresent, which means omni is all, present, present. You know, God is always present. He is always at hand. He is never removed. He is always near. And so what does that idea of the nearness, this constant presence of God do to us? Does it, does it bring comfort to you? Or does it bring fear to you? you know, we've, we've made our way all the way through uh, our three-year Bible reading plan called the Central Office. So if you're not part of that, I encourage you to get a part of it. Uh, it's it's a, a weekday um, Bible reading that goes out early in the morning, and it's got bits and pieces of the Psalms, Old Testament, New Testament, and the Gospels. And so we just started the, the beginning of another three-year cycle, and, and now we've gone through the book of Job. Now you might remember that the book of Job starts with this conversation, really, between God and Satan. It's so fascinating. Very interesting, very strange, but very fascinating. And God, after Satan comes from roaming the earth, God actually asks this question of Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and who turns away from evil. See, and, and, and then Satan says, well, you know what? That's not really fair because look how much you've blessed him. Look at all he has. I mean, he's a wealthy man. He's wealthy in and, and land, he's wealthy in property, he's wealthy in livestock, he's wealthy in, in the fact that his children, they're all healthy, everybody's doing great. And, and Satan really accuses Job in the presence of God and says, hey, if you remove your hand of blessing on him, let's just see what happens. I think that he likes the gifts more than he likes the giver of those gifts. And so, of course, he's going to praise you and bless you. Of course, he's going to live uprightly. But look, look at what you've done for him. And so what does God say? Okay, why don't, you, why don't you do those things that you say? Go ahead and remove those blessings. Go ahead and start to take away those things. You know, God doesn't tell Satan to do it, but he does permit him to start harming Job. His children die, his livestock die, his health declines. And, it, and yet God knows that Job's faith is deeper than those things. His faith is stronger 
and he believes that Job really loves him. You know, and if you know this story, in the, in the midst of his suffering, Job's friends come and they try to console him. And they do a great job at the beginning because they sit with him in silence and mourning. And then they start to speak. And, and they, they do what the rest of us always do, right? When something's going bad in life, what do we think? I must have messed this up somehow. You know, what, what, what's wrong with you? That's what they start to ask Job. You need to think about your, your life. You need to think about your sins. You need to confess those things to God so that you can just be done with this, this punishment. Just stop sinning and start obeying and everything's going to be better. Don't we always kind of think that, right? You know, we, we want our kids, hey, if you just act right, life is going to be better for you. For the most part, that's true, but it's not always true. You know, Job has done nothing wrong and yet he's suffering. And so Job does what Habakkuk did, and he says, hey, I demand to meet with God. And this is what he says. I wish I knew where I could find him, that I might come to his seat. I'd lay my case before him, this is Job 23, and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. Here's Job thinking, you know what, I'm going to get God. Like I'm going to put my finger right here and demand that he gives me an answer for what's going on in my life. And yet just a few verses later, this same chapter appears as Job starts to think about what would it look like to sit face to face with God. He says, I'm terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I'm not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. See, after demanding this audience with God and thinking about what's going to happen if God actually answers him, he's filled with dread and terror, and he's faint-hearted. This, the, the presence of God didn't bring him any consolation. In fact, he was thinking, you know what? If God shows up, that perfect God, that holy God, I've got something to fear. Well, what happens when God shows up, when, when the presence of God is revealed in a special way? Well, then the power of God is on full display. His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full as his praise. As we read through Habakkuk 3, there's, there's a brightness, rays of light. There's pestilence and there's plagues. The mountains are scattered. The hills are flattened. The rivers rage. The earth is split. The celestial objects stop their orbits. The whirlwinds scatter. The sea is trampled. And, and this is awesome and awful in every sense of the word. See, when God shows up, he can't help but showing off because he's not just omnipresent, but what else is he? He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is everywhere, but he also has dominion over everything. In, the, in these images, we're reminded about how God has acted in history. These are the things that he has already done. Remember what God did for Noah and for Moses and for Joshua and for David, and over and over and over again, he revealed his presence by demonstrating his power. See, when another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, finds himself transported into the throne room of God, and he comes face to face with the perfect power and the perfect holiness of God, he cries out, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a dead man, is what he says. When I think of the power of God and, and I look at my own self and I think of my own weakness and my own imperfection and I see him, I realize immediately I don't belong here. And so what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, Psalm 34 tells us to taste and see 
that the Lord is good and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. See, taste and see that fearing God is good. Understanding who he is and, and respecting him for his power and, and, and his might and all of these things. We're not fearing some unknown thing. This is a fear of the known, having a proper perspective of the power and the possibilities of the omnipotent. What can God do? The answer to that question is always whatever he wants to. And so throughout the Old Testament, people continually look back at what God has done. And they try to remember this, the powerful God, and they, and they try to, to think back on those things, and yet so often they get callous. They forget. They grow tired. And yet it's, it's often the enemies of God who are, who are doing a better job of fearing God than the Israelites are. Think of Rahab, who is this prostitute in Jericho, and as these spies come before her, she, she tells them that, that her people are terrified because they've heard about what God did to the Egyptians and what he's doing against the enemies of his people. She's more afraid of God than they are. And what happens to Rahab? Well, God delivers her. God shows up and God shows off. It's really the presence of God, the power of God, and finally the passion of God. See, throughout Scripture, when God acts, when he reveals his presence and demonstrates his power, he doesn't do so in an arbitrary way. In chapter 3, verse 6, we see that he stands and he measures. He's using perfect vision and perfect judgment. And what we know about God, both from here and the rest of the Bible, is that he is always motivated by his passionate love for his people. You know, anytime we see the, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the judgment of God, it's always aimed against those who are attacking those whom he loves. You think of that mama bear and the baby bears and, and, and how this, this rage is what? It's fueled by love and care for his people. All of God's acts throughout Israel, throughout the history of Israel, the flood and the plagues and the Red Sea and, 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 and everything. When you look at the heart behind the power and the purpose behind the action, you see that God is always at work trying to draw his people closer into his presence so that they can experience his love in a way that will transform them forever. And we find this most perfectly where? When we consider Jesus. Think of the presence of Jesus now. The creator God who made the world was not content to sit back and watch the world burn. See, God saw us in our helpless estate with perfect knowledge of all of our missteps, all of our mistakes, all of our failures, all of our flaws, knowing full well that we had more than just lost our way, but submitted ourselves headlong into sin, the very thing that sought to destroy us. And what did God do? He put on flesh. He came to dwell among us, to live with us, to be like us, to be present with us in a way that had never happened before. And, and he didn't just stop there. He wasn't merely present with those people in the first century Galilee, was he? And he made a promise to all of his disciples he said, I will be with you always. That everyone who ever follows after him and submits to him will not just have this warm feeling in their hearts and just kind of know the love of God, but they would actually have the presence of God inside of them through his very spirit. 
When we think of the power of Jesus, Jesus had power over sickness. He had power over demons. He had power over nature. Um, You know, when it comes to walking across water, which I hear is pretty hard to do, he could do that. Even his best friends are terrified of him when they see his power and they ask, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey this man? When a paralyzed man is lowered down to a roof in Mark chapter 2, and Jesus says your sins are forgiven, the questions immediately begin, who gave this guy power to forgive sins? Only God can do that. As he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and in these Roman centurions come to arrest him, and they ask the question, where is Jesus? He says two words, I am. That's the same name that God calls himself, the same, the same name that, that God had told his people, this is my identity. And Jesus says, I am. And the Roman soldiers fall back on the ground at the hearing of his name. There's power in his name. There's power in his being. He reveals his power over sin, his power over death. The grave cannot hold him. Nothing can stop him. And why is that? It's because of his passion. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. He was sent to live and sent to suffer and sent to die. When Jesus saw the the need of his friend Mary who had lost her brother, who was grieving uncontrollably, what does he do? He draws near to her and he's greatly troubled in his spirit and he wept. When a rich man came up to Jesus looking for the question, the, the, the greatest question you could ever ask is, what do I have to do to get eternal life, Jesus? What does it say to Jesus there? Jesus looked at him and he loved him. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, whose leaders had mocked him and ridiculed him and had tried several times already to kill him, Jesus laments. He, he cries out in frustration and in love and he says, I long to gather you in like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. To love you and to protect you, but you are not willing to allow me to do that. See, it was the passion of Jesus which sent him to his death. For the joy that Jesus went to the cross, the love that knew there's no greater gift that he could give than to lay down his life for his friends so they could experience his presence, his power, and his passion forever. Let me close by reading Hebrews chapter 4 for us, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So how are we to draw near with confidence? By remembering who God is. By remembering that he is present and he is powerful, but he is also patient and personal. He has purposed and planned deliverance for his people. And how do we get to that place? Well, just like Habakkuk, we wrestle with all of our might. Do you think your most difficult questions are, are too difficult for God? Do you think your feelings are too strong for God? Do you think your experiences, that your past mistakes have, neg- have, have disqualified you from, from coming before God? 
Just think about that God. Think about that one who is always present, the one who is powerful over all things, and the one who is so desperately passionate for you. Won't you pray with me? Father God, you are an incredible God. You are sovereign over big things and over small things. Lord, every hair on our heads you care about. Lord, every minuscule detail of our lives, the things that we think no one else even notices, Lord, you are deeply aware of. And Lord, you know how desperately each of us need Jesus. We thank you that you are never apart from us. Lord, that you are always with us, that there is nothing that you don't see, that there is nothing that you are not in control of. Lord, we thank you that your love for us is so much deeper than we can ever realize. And so, Father, we ask that today you would help us to come to you with all that we are, to trust you with everything that we bring, and to feel the love of Jesus in our hearts. We pray this in his name. Amen. As we focus upon that omnipotence,